This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by The Boeing Company. We don't just think about the future. We engineer it, solve its problems, and build it every day. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On October 23rd, the Washington Post hosted its Transformers Space event featuring Vice President Mike Pence. This wide-ranging program covered the factors shaping American leadership in space, the new space race, and the future of space exploration that could lead to a future beyond Earth. In this segment, Virgin Galactic CEO George Whitesides takes a look at the role private companies are playing in the new space race and how they are working with the public sector to make space more accessible to civilians. Let's listen. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Chris Davenport, and it's uh, my pleasure to be here for the last panel of the day. Uh, I'm a space and defense industries reporter here at The Post, and I am so glad to be joined uh, here once again by George Whitesides, the CEO of Virgin Galactic. Uh, We just saw his boss on the screen, Richard Branson. They're building uh, a space plane that will be air-launched and be taking tourists, ordinary people, uh, to the edge of space and back. So thank you so much for, for being with us. Nice to be with you. Yeah. Um, so Richard recently said that you are tantalizingly close to getting to space. We've been waiting uh, a long time and watching with great anticipation. So where, where are you? Give us a sense of where the program is. Well, uh, we're at a very exciting point in our test flight program. Uh, We've been doing powered uh, test flights this year, as you know, and and got up to about um, 170,000 feet, so, you know, order of magnitude five or six times the altitude of what an airliner uh, goes to. And we're about to get into the next phase of our test flight program, which will be uh, higher altitude and longer duration burns. Um, That's really one of the final phases before we go into uh, commercial uh, service. So, you know, it's been a long effort. I think all of these companies that are working on human spaceflight, you know, you, you hear um, some of the other folks talk about um, the challenges of putting together a human spaceflight vehicle. Um, and it's hard, but uh, I think we're nearly there, and, and that's an exciting point for us. So you think actual commercial operations out of Spaceport America sometime next year, perhaps? Yeah, we're getting real, real close to that. I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing is that... Um, you know, the United States has been without human spaceflight for uh, several years since the retirement of the space shuttle. And, and within the uh, space of, you know, a year, probably, we're going to go from zero uh, to as many as four, uh, you know, three or four different um, human spaceflight vehicles. What an exciting time to be uh, in, in space, to have that profusion of different concepts coming out and... Uh, and for the United States, you know, the United States is already the leader in launch, broadly speaking, but we'll, to, to sort of recapture the leadership in human spaceflight will be really great. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, because we just had all of these NASA astronauts on stage uh, flying in commercial vehicles with Boeing and, and SpaceX under a NASA program, but it's entirely possible that uh, the people who re- restore uh, human spaceflight from U.S. soil could be Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin, which is also trying to do it. I mean, I think that kind of tells us where we are, don't you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, time will tell. Obviously, every flight that we do is crewed, you know, and so um, that means every flight that we do, you know, if it gets up to space altitude, we'll be, we'll have humans on board. Our, our vehicle is piloted, right, and, and uh, two pilots in every spaceship flight. So, so that's an interesting thing, and, and you know, we're looking forward to, uh, to uh, getting to that stage in our test flight program. So let's just talk a minute about safety, right? Because you had the accident in 2014 that killed one of the pilots, Michael Alsberry. You're talking about taking, you know, not these sort of, you know, best of the best who have been through all of the NASA training that we just had here up on stage, but more ordinary people. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you've done since the accident and, you know, what you tell your customers about safety and what you're doing. Sure. Well, I think all of us in the human spaceflight business uh, know that um, we won't have a business if we don't have a, a safe vehicle. And that's why we're spending so much effort in the test flight program when we can uh, work through many of the challenges um, that we have in, uh, so that when we get to commercial operations, we have a vehicle that we can really believe in. Um, the, our accident, we, we had to put in a sort of a check to make sure that um, the pilots didn't make a certain action during a phase of flight, which we've done. And then we've done a few other improvements uh, on our vehicle, which we call Unity. Um, and so, you know, we're feeling really good. As, as you know, Chris, I'm a customer. I was a customer before I was uh, an executive, so I bought a, a couple of t tickets for my wife and I, and we're looking forward to, to riding on board as soon as it's ready to go. I just want to remind people who are watching online, if you want to tweet any questions uh, to George, you can do that using the, uh, the hashtag transformers. Um, so the cost now is $250,000 a ticket. I think it started out at $200,000 a ticket. You know, ultimately, I think the goal, and I've heard Richard say this, is to bring that to bring that down if you're flying more. I mean, but what does that look like? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? If so, what's the sort of timeline there? Do you have any sense of that? Well, I mean, I think that the long-term goal is no question to bring the cost down, right? I mean, if you look at the earliest uh, trips across the Atlantic in air travel and on a sort of a real dollar basis, those were $100,000, sometimes $150,000, $200,000 tickets. So it's not uncommon for this kind of experience to start off relatively expensive and then come down. Now, I think actually it's possible that the cost goes up for a bit. Um, be, just because, uh, you know, we and others probably need to, to amortize our, our development costs. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if you see the cost rise a bit for a while. But then over time, I think you'll see that, that decline. I have this uh, long-term goal of the, the sort of the SUV barrier, which is like if you can get it as, as uh, affordable as a car or something, then a lot of people, I think, you know, I think millions of people would do it at that price. So talk a little bit about, you know, what the experience will be like in terms of, you know, you're at Spaceport America, I've got my ticket, do I show up a week, ahead, you know, in advance for training, a couple days? Walk me through, to the extent that you can, you know, what, what that experience will be like. Sure. So um, going to space is, uh, you know, it's an exciting experience, and we want people to be, to be ready for it. How many people here would go to space? Have you already asked this question? Would go to space if money and safety were no issue? DC is a relatively conservative crowd, but I think I see a bunch of hands out there. So that's, that's terrific. Um, you know, what we're going to be doing is uh, three days of training before you start uh, your actual flight. Um, so you'll come down to Spaceport America in southern New Mexico, which is this beautiful building. Um, built uh, by Sir Norman Foster uh, down there. And uh, then you'll go through a few days of training where you understand the ship and you understand how you move around the ship. 
um, and uh, and you think a little bit about what you're going to do in space, right? Because that's you know some people are going to have the desire to just look out at the planet and and just soak it in and have that peak experience. Other people are going to have the desire to sort of play in zero gravity, and you know our customers will be able to get out of their seats and sort of play and do things. And other people want to do other stuff, so we want them to think about that. Um, and then on the morning of, you know, uh, we'll have this uh, really neat ceremony where people sort of uh, walk out to their waiting spaceship, you know, sort of like that right stuff moment. Steak and eggs for breakfast, like the astronauts? Whatever, whatever they want, uh, whatever they want. They're paying $250,000, so um, <laughs> whatever they would like. And, uh, but a really almost a theatrical moment where, you know, many of these folks are going to be bringing their families or dozens. Some, some have even said they might bring hundreds of people down, you know, to experience this moment, which for many people have been waiting for, for decades. Uh, for. We have this amazing lady in our customer group named Wally Funk, and she was actually one of the first astronauts that was sort of female astronauts that was picked for NASA in the 60s. Um, they, she never flew uh, because it wasn't sort of like ever made official as a NASA program, but she's been waiting to fly for like 50 years, you know, uh, more than 50 years. And, and so we're, she's, she's like, uh, she's going to fly. And, and so that moment when, and, but, you know, she's, she's an extreme example, but there, there are people who've been waiting, wanting to go to space for their whole life. And it's such a blessing to be able to like actually bring that into reality, to create something with our incredible group of engineers that can actually make that a reality at a price point that is, you know, when you think about it, NASA's getting charged, I don't know what the latest is, but over $70 million by the Russians per seat, right? And so, uh, you know, our product is about $250,000. And so you look at that, that's a factor of what? You know, like hundreds less, right? And, and so that's a radical change. And that's what we need to open the space frontier is, is to have those orders of magnitude change. Now, admittedly, it's a different product, right? Going to space station versus suborbital flight, different things. But the idea that you can access space for, you know, 300 times less than what the going price is, is what's going to change uh, humanity's relationship with space. So we have a question from Twitter. Uh, Michael asks, if, if the cost does come down, how long is the waiting list? Do you have to do anything else to qualify? And it kind of feeds into a question I want to ask as well. I think you're, you have a list of about 600, 700 people who have signed up. I'm sure, aside from the raise your hands that you just did in the room, you've done market research. What does that show in terms of the demand uh, from people to go? Well, it, it shows, I mean, um, there's a huge demand for people going into space. I mean, most of the places that I go to, you know, uh, if, if money is not an issue, you know, you, you get 80, 90% of people who would, who would love to go. Uh, not everybody's a first adopter, right? So we have over 600 people who've signed up. These are the, essentially the first adopters, people who really want to make it happen by putting that money down and, and, and contributing to the future. Um, but there's a much bigger pool of people. So that pool of people at the current price point is in the millions. And I think it goes up to tens of millions when you have a lower price point. Wow. So, um, you know, you guys have a plan to take uh, tourists to the edge of space and then come back down. You know, Richard's always looking at the next frontier, uh, and, you know, he has some ideas to sort of merge maybe Virgin Galactic and a Virgin Atlantic-type experience where you, you know, go to space but then land in another city, so you're going from New York to Singapore in a couple of hours. Where does that stand? And talk to us a little bit about that vision. Well, of course, you know, Richard, um, after the music business, you know, made the next part of his fortune in, in airlines. And... Um, and he has always, I think, been 
like many of us, frustrated by this idea that we're stuck at Mach 0.85, you know, and have been for 50 years, other than a bit, of, a bit about the Concorde. Um, so I think that um, we believe that it's not going to be Spaceship Two, which is our current vehicle, but a Spaceship Three type vehicle could be built to have a longer cross range, rocket powered, and because we have wings, we can integrate into national airspace systems uh, so that you could actually eventually land at an airport, uh, you know, like a major airport, and that would be the most convenient thing. Our vision is to start off with a network of spaceports around the globe, not many of them, maybe three, four, five, and uh, you would fly between those spaceports to start, right? So you'd, you'd fly down to, you know, New Mexico if you're on the West Coast or someplace on the East Coast, and then you would get a uh, vehicle ride that would take you across the ocean in an hour or two, and then you'd have to get on a feeder flight over there. But it, all in all, you would save half of your journey time or, or more. And you know, what's exciting is that we're actually seeing that interest internationally as well. So you know, we're talking, obviously, with Italy and various other places about uh, potentially setting up spaceports abroad. We will start, and our headquarters will remain in New Mexico in the United States. But, but there is this idea of establishing the start of a network out there. So but I'm sure there are technological challenges that you're working on now, but also regulatory ones when you're, you know, whether it's the FAA here in the U.S. or going into a foreign country, what are some of the hurdles that you're facing that you would have to clear before you're able to sort of do that point-to-point uh, -point transportation? Well, space technology is, uh, you know, uh, restricted under this thing called the ITAR, and so, uh, so we have to, you know, obey those, those laws, and, and uh, generally speaking, we have very good relations with our uh, regulators. I think the important thing to recognize from a policy perspective is that we're no longer alone, you know, in advanced space technology, right? Space technology is now permeating around the planet. And so intelligent policymaking has to happen as it pertains to exports, right? I mean, you know, uh, the Chinese are building uh, vehicles. They've, they've announced that they're building a suborbital vehicle. Um, uh, the Russians uh, are talking about a suborbital vehicle. Obviously, there's a wide range of competition internationally. Many of those uh, firms are, uh, uh, are subsidized, essentially, by their, by their national governments. And so I think we need to have uh, an openness to, to providing an export uh, uh, out of the country for some of this technology, or else, you know, they're just going to buy it from somebody else. The other thing that I would say is, and, you know, just to make a plug uh, on another D.C. policy issue, is that um, Congress really should uh, get the U.S. Export-Import Bank up to full speed, because there are deals that I have right now that could be done if the bank could actually uh, do deals above uh, $10 million. And it is really hurting American aerospace to not have the bank at full strength. And I would just urge anybody who has any ability to affect that um, to work on it, because we have hundreds of jobs, you know, thousands of jobs, hundreds of jobs for us, thousands of jobs for other firms that are dependent on these export deals. And, and uh, it, to me, it's inexplicable that we cannot uh, reauthorize something that actually makes money for the United States of America. But these are deals, you're talking about spaceports in other countries? What, what deals specifically are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interest out there for, for, uh, for spaceships to, to, to operate in other parts, of the, uh, other parts of the world. Right. So I think this has come up a couple of times, but with you, you know, it, you're, you're very close to it in terms of getting, you know, people up there. And, um, you know, for the moment, let's take the optimistic view that uh, you're successful in doing this and your test program is robust and vigorous and produces a vehicle that can safely and reliably take people. And I know you're being very, very careful about that. Um, 
What does it look like in five to 10 years where, you know, what is Virgin's footprint in the US? How many spacecraft do you have uh, around the world? How many people have been to space? And what's sort of the significance of all of that? So right now, only about 550 people have ever been to space in the entire history of humanity. I mean, I don't know how many people are here today, but it's probably you know, a few hundred. So like twice the size of this room maybe have ever been to space, right? And you know, basically the number of people who can fit on an Airbus 380 you know, in one flight. I think it's nuts you know, um, that we haven't had more progress in that. So the number one thing that's going to be exciting about the next few years when it comes to human spaceflight is that we are going to be doubling, tripling, quadrupling you know, by 10 the number of people who've been to space in a relatively short order. And by short order, I mean you know, a small number of years. I think that's going to have a profound impact on the planet. You know, the, the astronauts um, that were just up here, you know, speak so eloquently about the impact that the space experience has on them when they go up into space and the, the, the idea of the overview effect. And there's this great show that many of them were on um, about one strange rock. You know, that profound shift in perspective that you get when you do go up to space and you look down at our home planet and you see the fragility of the, of the biosphere. I think having that first person being spread into all the countries of the Earth. So far, only about 50 countries have sent somebody um, of their own nationality to space. Imagine if all of the countries of the world had someone from you know, a man and a woman or kids and adults who've been to space and who bring that experience back down to their communities, to their national leaders. I think that's exactly what the world needs right now, that planetary perspective. Um, many of our biggest problems that we face are sort of dependent on understanding that we're in one big spaceship Earth. And so I, I really hope that we can play a small role in, in sharing that perspective um, globally. So one of the sort of amazing things, and you alluded to this earlier, about the time that we're in right now with all these companies building all these uh, launch vehicles and spacecraft and balloons and even habitats, um, is that you actually have competition, not just to take people to space, but a suborbital competition um, from Blue Origin, who we should disclose is owned by Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington I've Post. I've heard that. Um, what, uh, what is that? But so how do it's you... It's good reporting, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate that. We, we, we've always got to address it. You know, we want to be upfront about it. Very upfront. Um, but how does, that, how does that shape what you're doing? Look, I, I think competition is what moves America forward, and it's what moves innovation forward, and uh, it keeps you sharp, it keeps you on your toes. Um, this is good, right? I mean, we have competition uh, in provision of cargo to the International Space Station. We have competition in provision of crew services to the International Space Station. We're going to have competition in suborbital spaceflight. That is what it's all about. I mean, you know, that is what has driven costs down in any product category in history. It's what's driven improvements in technology in every product category in history. It's the basis of capitalism. It's the basis of improvement. Um, and so I think it's a very good thing to have two massively successful entrepreneurs actually many more than, uh, a few more than two, you wrote the book on it, um, but to have two uh, massively successful entrepreneurs believe that there's a huge market in suborbital spaceflight is a very good thing, I think, for belief in that market. And, you know, it suggests to me that we're on to something, and, and I, think it's, uh, I think the market is going to be, you know, much bigger than, than either of us can serve for many years. Do you think you have an advantage because of it's a space plane and it can land on a, a runway? 
I think they're just different systems. You know, I mean, I, I, we have huge respect for the folks inside the uh, blue technical team. I think they have respect for our technical team. You know, a lot of those folks came out of NASA or other parts of the industry. They all know that what we're trying to do is hard and, and takes a lot of effort, and particularly for a human spaceflight system that is not going to put, you know, a, a amazing uh, leaf amazing amazingly uh, fit folks you know but a wide diversity of folks into space you know these are challenging things and so um, uh, so you know I think it's just different different architectures just for how fit do you have to be uh, so we tested that by we took um, you know our first hundred customers which we call our founder community um, and we put them through a centrifuge and some zero gravity tests and we found that about 97 to 98 percent of them were fine um, we had 80 year old grandmothers uh, you know some guy with uh, four artificial joints uh, in a you know in 4G 5G centrifuge and they all did fine so I think um, the, the vast vast majority of people on earth um, will be able to fly to space. Okay, good. I think that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you so much for, for being with us. Really appreciate it. But before we let you go, I just want to mention a couple of things. Uh, the Post is putting on a series uh, that we've been working on for some time about uh, companies uh, in the entrepreneurial spirit of working in space, and you can follow that at washingtonpost.com space. Also, uh, if you like what you heard today, and uh, in, in, uh, George mentioned I have a book called The Space Barons, which is for sale uh, out in the lobby, which covers a lot of what Virgin Galactic is up to, but also uh, SpaceX, you know, sort of a real leader uh, in this space as well. And if you want to watch any of the interviews and go back and watch this from our people online or check out any upcoming events, please visit WashingtonPostLive.com. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming today. It's been a real pleasure. I also want to say thank you to the Washington Post Live staff for putting this on. It's a lot of work, and they did a great job. So thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.